Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Craig Eastman. Hello, my name is Stephen. No, it's Craig and Drew Tavendale. <laughs> Hello, I claim no other name for myself. So we are gathered here today to talk about director Lynn Ramsey, partly because she's Scottish and partly because she's a she, uh, both of which we seem to have been lacking in experience lately. Lynn Ramsey, of course, born in 1969, he said, not at all reading from Wikipedia, a Scottish director who has received quite a bit of acclaim despite having not really produced all that many films, so we thought we'd take this opportunity to explore her works and see if it's any good or not. Uh, so I think we will just start by going straight into her earliest feature film, which is 1999's Ratcatcher. Uh, Drew, would you like to give us a little bit of a spiel about that? I would, Scott, I would. So I shall. I'm not going to be truculent about it. <laughs> <laughs> From Ratcatcher's opening, we're in no doubt that this is not your typical sentimental, wistful peon for a lost childhood. A boy wraps himself in a net curtain and he, and we, are sharply brought to our senses when he receives a smack around the head and an admonition from his mother, from his mum not to ruin our curtains. <laughs> During the Glasgow Dustman strike of 1973, bags of refuse build up on the streets and backyards of a council estate. Children play amongst and with the rat-infested rubbish, as well as in the filthy canal nearby. In the canal, two adolescent boys play, until one of the boys disappears beneath the water and doesn't return. While it is a tragic accident, the surviving boy, James Gillespie, played by William Eady, could have, and should have, done more to help his friend. Instead, he flees. But he's never allowed to escape the tragedy, either in his private thoughts or, for example, when the boy's grief-stricken mother desperately hugs him to remind her of her dead son, or gifts James the new shoes she bought her son on the day of his death. Ratcatcher is seen mostly from James's perspective. He's a loner who tries to create his own entertainment when and where he can, while trying to avoid the pitfalls of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like being unfortunate enough to simply be around when a teenage gang is bored and looking for amusement. Or perhaps of being on the wrong side of his father, who is mean when drunk. He has his first physical experiences with girls in the form of the much older Margaret Ann, the Anne Mullen, a rather sad, bullied young woman who no doubt would cruelly have been referred to as the neighbourhood bicycle, but who clearly uses sex as her own way to survive in this hard, hard place. In many ways, James is still very much a child, though, and Ramsay, who also wrote the screenplay, does a good job of portraying James's patchy and incomplete understanding of the world around him. The director's less narrative-driven, more impressionistic style evokes a strong sense of time and place which, in comparison to films we'll come to later, works particularly well with this subject matter, which is far more about experience and feeling than it is about plot. She's aided in her portrayal of this era and setting by some great acting, including her own daughter as James's younger sister, Though perhaps William Eady may be too good at being cold-eyed and detached as James himself is a pretty unlikable character, though this may well be intentional. Ratcatcher is an ugly film, a bleak film, and also an authentic film that in many of its characters and situations rings true, in an almost documentarian way, times. But it also contains sparks of humour, of hope, and of the irrepressible spirit of children. 
a slice-of-life film shorn entirely of sentimentality, though not entirely of tenderness. It's not an easy or particularly enjoyable watch, but it is rewarding enough for me to recommend checking it out, even if admittedly it's far from a wholehearted recommendation. Yeah, I, mean, I, I liked Ratcatcher well enough, but it's it's a hard film to recommend. It's got that sort of Mike Lee f- f- misery feeling all the way throughout it, doesn't it? It's it, it oh, Ken Loach certainly. Um, it's got that Ken Loach sort of yeah, sorry, Ken Loach. What I mean, actually, um, yeah, well, Council of the State, horrible bleakness. Yes, yeah, everything's shit and it's never going to get better. That yes, that's very much the tone of it. <laughs> Yeah. And it's certainly not approved by the Glasgow Tourist Board. <laughs> it's, uh, well, it's very much playing to the, uh, the 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 stereotypes that they've worked very hard to dis- distance themselves from. Uh, but th- yeah, it's, it's a very grim film. Um, <laughs> the whole toy is very much we're doomed. <laughs> yeah, it's even sad when you when you see his uh, when James is like sort of escapes to the new housing estates that are being built, which would be I, I don't know what out in Bishop Briggs or something like that. It's like eh, it's not that much of a step up if we're honest. You say authentic is a really good word for it. It does feel all very grounded, realistic, and um, relatable. Some of the characters, yeah, it, it's hard to empathise with them from what done, but you know, it's it, it never feels like you're so distant from them. So like, I can't understand why he would panic and run off, and how that would haunt him and, uh, yes. throughout the rest of his life. And it's a, it's all a very relatable story, and yeah, one that's I think quite rewarding in its own way. But yeah, it's just just not the happiest thing in the world to, to see. Mm. No, and certainly by no means does every film need to be happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I've mentioned it before, I suspect we've all at some point made the similar point that film can be escapism, it can be entertainment, but it can be reflection too, it can be highlighting things, it can be thoughtfulness. And I think you do your, yourself a disservice by only watching things that are escapist or yeah. hugely entertaining. Film, but, film, can, film can also be a lens... Focusing the sun's rays to a point on a steaming pile of <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but it, it can be difficult to watch something quite so bleak as this. Uh, I know there is and has been a lot of poverty in Glasgow and there are very mm. large parts of it that are very hard, uh, both in terms of difficulty, but just in, in terms of that word meaning mm. um, describing the people as well. But it's by no means all of Glasgow, um, so I can yeah. see why perhaps Glaswegians wouldn't be particularly happy about this film. But it is authentic for for that lower income part of Glasgow, mm. particularly in that period. Yeah, I mean, I've stayed. I have stayed in the south side of Glasgow for quite some time, and if I, I imagine if there was a rubbish uh, collection strike, it wouldn't have looked all that much different to what they did in yes. uh, Ratcatcher here. I was going to say there are there are, we we're all fairly familiar. Some of us more than others, but we're all um, fairly explicitly familiar with with Glasgow in many forms. And there are parts of that city now which are as cosmopolitan as any other major major city anywhere in the sort of developed western world but then yeah like you say scott there are there are parts where this probably looks depressingly familiar and the only thing that's changed since 1973 is probably the wallpaper Um, favelas without the sunshine (laughs) yes exactly drizzly drizzly favelas (laughs) but but it is very compelling in its own way and also i think as well one of those one of those great pleasures in film um is in contrast to the sort of precocious child actor, which can be the most annoying thing yeah, um, uh, potentially indeed. in film, is when a sort of unknown and untrained, as I think William Eady might have been, um, talent comes along and absolutely excels. It can uh, A young talent, yeah. rather. It can be a, a very enjoyable thing. And if there is any enjoyment to be taken from this film, 
I think definitely it's it's definitely in the performances. I I saw it a long time ago. Um, it aired on STV. It must have been about ten, twelve years ago. I think I must have initially uh, saw this film. And I haven't thought about it much since. And actually watching it again now, it doesn't it doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to my memory. I don't remember it being <laughs> as um, overbearing and um, depressing as as this. But um, it, it's certainly a well, it's certainly more enjoyable piece in, in some respects than the film I'll be talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, but it certainly marks um, it certainly marks Ramsey out as a talent. I'm not sure, mm. not sure how I feel about it sitting within the Criterion Collection, but it's impressively strong for a first time outing. Yes, um, she's clearly got a very strong style and a strong vision which she's brought to the screen. Uh, I mean, she's. What will what's kind of striking about Lynn Ramsey is that she only has done four feature films thus far, mm. but from her very first one, she clearly has a very strong sense of style, of purpose. Yes, uh, it's not something I think is particularly successful most of the time, but mm. it, quite clearly she has a style mm-hmm. which a lot of first-time filmmakers can can struggle to find, yes. certainly to maintain, which she certainly has done. And just got to your point too, Craig, about the child actor as well. Yeah, there's. I don't know why, but actually, it's a in this sort of film with this sort of setting, often a poor setting or more realistic. That quite often a director can find particularly naturalistic talent mm. because in this, yes, Willie Meade, very naturally not at all that precocious child actor thing. And whether it's simply because they've not been in through theatre schools and stuff, if it is just they are just first time acting, mm. that helps a lot. I think. Uh, I think it's about. And Scott mentioned favela, so it's appropriate. But things like City of God, yep. which was cast nearly entirely from uh, unknowns, from just kids they got in the street, and the the naturalistic performances of them in a setting they know to, mm. just really is what made that film work I've, so well. I've I've read a couple of pieces about Lynn Ramsey, and there's some suggestion that because she works, we'll probably talk about it a bit more as we go along. But she works quite frequently with untrained talent and just sort of people who just occupy roles which she comes across in her daily life, and where she will cast them in her her work, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of it apparently. Um, or the interpretation seems to be uh, stems from her own upbringing. She's a very humble background, I think. It was, I can't remember which of her parents it was. Um, but she's basically the daughter of a bartender. She doesn't She doesn't come from some sort of Hollywood liberal elite background. Um, she grew up in, I believe it was Glasgow, um, with a parent who was a bartender. And that that is that is Lim Ranzi's story, and that is what she knows. And I, I expect perhaps find some truth um, in... Uh, when she's when she's working um, in these these um, pieces in these environments, so yeah, if you look at Ratcatcher and a couple of her shorts, Gasman and Small Deaths in particular, yeah, you do very much feel that it's coming from experience. Mm. That this is not interpretation; this is knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's not invention or anything. And, and I think, it, and again, we'll speak about it as we go on for all the flaws which you've already touched on, Drew. I think it's one of the more compelling things about the way that she works, but. Um, I was actually going to mention too. Just we were talking about Glasgow, and I, I don't want to bag on Glasgow. It's, Glasgow, like most even medium-sized cities, you know, has the rich and the poor in it. And I think, and we mentioned Ken Loach too. I think there's a lot of this that would ring true to very many places in Britain, particularly ex-industrial places where industry's really fallen off. Mm. But even you know, London, one of the richest cities in the world, also has some of, if not the worst poverty in the UK at the same time, as is often yeah. the case with huge cities. So yeah. Often right next to each other as well, yes, which is the yes, case in Glasgow. Absolutely. Yeah. 
It speaks. It speaks. It speaks in Glaswegian, but it doesn't necessarily speak solely to Glasgow. No, I can some like you know London, Manchester, Bradford, Birmingham, perhaps any of these things. I I have this feeling that without knowing it, those cities anything like mm. as well. And Edinburgh too, although Edinburgh's a much smaller city, so it doesn't feel quite the same. But certainly, it has the large areas of poverty too. Mm. But I think for any reasonably sized city in Britain, that this has a good chance of ringing true to someone at least. I think um, you'll remember, you guys will probably remember, I don't think it's there now, but when you drove into Glasgow on the city centre approach along the M80, um, you used to come in past the big sort of gas storage tanks Mm -hmm. um, on the way in, Mm -hmm. and there was one of them that had that slogan, Glasgow's Smiles Better, Mm -hmm. written on it with a big smiley face on it that was there for years since I could Mr. Happy, wasn't it? Mr. Happy, yeah, Glasgow Smiles Better. And this, 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 this film just feels like a big off to that <laughs> that's the best way i can think to sum it up but yeah like you say it's not i don't imagine will be for everyone but it feels like a compelling piece of work yes shall i talk about marvin caller scott i think you should you don't need my approval well, you my no, permission. But it's still nice to have scott <laughs> it's still nice I, to have i disagree i don't think you should talk about it but you but then again, you've, you've gone to the trouble of watching and writing about it, so... Well, the people in the, the, people in the film head. certainly don't want to talk about it. But no. <laughs> when Samantha Morton's Morvern Caller wakes up on the lounge floor next to the body of her author boyfriend, she finds his computer beckoning her to read his suicide note. In it, he expresses his love for Morvern, the determination that slitting his wrists while he slept, quote, seemed like the right thing to do, unquote, and that she is to submit his completed manuscript to a number of publishers and use the money he has left in his bank account to pay for his funeral. So, Morvern instead decides to aimlessly hang around an empty train station, pop a pill and go out drunkenly partying with her friend, reveal herself to a passing fishing boat and sleep with a complete stranger. Then, after a couple of days of working around her boyfriend's body, she chops it up in the bath while listening to a mixtape he left her, buries the remains in a remote, shallow grave, edits the manuscript to name herself the author, and uses the burial money to pay for a party holiday in Ibiza. Now, we all deal with grief in different ways, (laughs) but... What I'm saying is that I found it very difficult to sympathise with Morvern as the protagonist in a story that deals with... Well, I don't really know what it deals with, to be honest. (laughs) So I guess that means I just don't buy Morvern as a protagonist. (laughs) But I'll come back to that in a minute. There is actually a good deal to appreciate about Morvern Caller. Everything about the movie is steeped in economy, beginning with Ramsey's direction, which, separated from the script, I like very much. There's a confidence in the way she allows the story to run its course, which speaks to an experience beyond a typical sophomore filmmaker. And I trust in Morton and the rest of the cast, whom I understand, as we've mentioned, to have been largely, if not entirely, untrained, is fairly obvious. There is a maturity which makes me marvel at how infrequently Ramsey has worked, yet also glad that she hasn't felt the need to keep pace with industry expectation. Here is a director I want to see only when they are good and ready to say something, even if I'm baffled by their message. (laughs) Um, The movie is likewise shot with a refreshing lack of visual verbosity by Alwyn Kuchler, Ratcatcher alumni and a name with which I was not familiar, therefore forcing me to kick myself when I discovered he worked with Danny Boyle on Sunshine. Um, Out with the confines of city and town centres, Scotland is a frequently blunt and miserable array of matter, which, admittedly stunning mountainscapes and coastlines aside, often presents itself in the guise of mud, heather and grass-covered tilty bits, interspersed with broad strokes of ill-maintained tarmac we call roads. All you need to know about Kukler's work here is that he does some of those justice. 
Um, in terms of performances, Morton is a wonderful choice for the role because she is as close to a flawless actress as I believe England may have produced. And she is blessed with that ability to say as much, if not more, with her expressions when silent as when emoting at full tilt. Not that there will be much in the way of tilting here, you understand, as that economy I have mentioned extends with prevalence to the writing of Morvern, who is <laughs> as enigmatic, if not engaging, a protagonist as I may have ever encountered in film. <laughs> and this is the crux of my issue with the movie. As engaging as Morton is, and even though her abilities seem to come from the cosmic ether, <laughs> unlike that vacuum of potential energy from which I believe she is born, even she cannot be expected to manifest something from less than nothing. If Morvern is experiencing some sort of inner anguish at the death of her lover, some existential turmoil or critical metamorphosis, then I, as the viewer, am not to know of it. <laughs> we know nothing of Morvern's life. Her relationship is perhaps implied to have been an emotionally and or intellectually an equal one, but I base that solely on my assumed verbosity of the deceased and Morvern's borderline mute presence at her menial job in a supermarket. <laughs> I suppose I must also assume that, statistically speaking, her boyfriend is unlikely to have shared her proclivity for dismemberment, so that could probably be considered <laughs> an inequality too. Opposite I'm all for it. Yes. <laughs> I'm all for enigmas, especially human ones. And a lot of the performances I've appreciated throughout the years have been those where an actor's eyes have said more than their pie hole. But I can only reasonably be expected to engage with that enigma if their reasoning, history, and impetus are not all completely internalized to the point of nothingness. <laughs> I find myself infuriated by the talent so clearly evident in virtually every other aspect of Marvin Caller. It's like being handed a note by some mysterious figure who says, Read this. Your life and the lives of your family depend on it, only to find out it's been written in invisible ink. <laughs> I suppose what I'm trying to say is that this is the only film in which I've seen Samantha Morton where she hasn't engaged me. I trust you implicitly, Samantha. I really do, and I'm willing to accept that it. it may well be me, not you, but this just isn't for me. There are plenty of people who claim Morvern is a compelling character. I know that because I've spent a good deal of my free time today desperately reading through IMDb user reviews in the hope of unearthing some truth about her, if not perhaps my own intellectual and emotional shortcomings, which I can only presume to be the reason for my failure to grasp her. And to those people, all I can say is this. What is your evidence? <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly frustrated, I'm guessing you can probably tell. I desperately want to like Marvin Caller as... On a level of craftsmanship, it has considerable chops, and I even find myself comparing it favourably to great British low-budget works of atmosphere of recent years, such as Dead Man's Shoes, for example. I just don't know what it is I'm buying here, and it's <laughs> driving me nuts. Someone please tell me I am not going nuts. Well, I can tell you that if you are going nuts, I'm at least on the same path with you. Are we on the crazy train together? Perhaps so, because... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Because what you have said is almost exactly how I feel about it. It's like I can, I can appreciate all of the craft and things. But yes. I'm just like, to what end is this craft? Thank goodness uh, for that. And I'm, I, I don't even know if I'm supposed to sympathise with her or dislike her. I don't. I, yeah, she's. I kind of dislike her. I'm not sure if that's the point or not. But yeah, there's not really enough of a character there to no. really dislike or like. No, even and though they have chopped someone up in a bath, that is normally a pretty good. That is normally <laughs> a pretty good sign that you're not supposed to like that person. Yeah, but because there's no malice there. Clearly, yeah. she's grieving. She's shocked. Yeah. She's grieving, and people deal with grief differently. And when, I mean, I must admit, I must. I was thinking that body must be honking. 
<laughs> the smell must be unbelievable. But, but when she's she's not telling anybody that her boyfriend is dead, that she's leaving the body there and things. Um, I was okay with that. I was on board with that. I can yeah. understood. Yes, this woman, she's shocked. She's grieving. Yeah. She doesn't really know what she's doing. Where she is. Okay, but then she takes the step of dismembering a body. Like, no. This, this is just now a completely different film. And the, but yes, at the same time, Craig, I'm not disliking you for that. No, I'm more because just it's, rendered, it's rendered so ambiguous that you can't even factor that into the decision-making process of whether or not you are supposed to like this character. Yeah. Last thing, like, everything else um, makes sense. Like her putting her name on the, the manuscript, okay. Her sort of not quite pretending he's not dead, but decide not to confront it yeah and I go f- on a holiday i feel like all there's a, i feel like there's a better film drew where all that happened was in a in a fit of madness and or you know grief induced madness or grief induced whatever or if we were given some sort of clue as to what the nature of the relationship was and she felt she had to have some revenge on him that she put her name on that manuscript and it sold and she used that to fund some sort of you know excursion to ibiza with a human being rather than an alien in the in the lead role. I think I think there would be a far more compelling film to be had there that might have, and I'm not saying a film yeah. has to have an obvious message, but at least a message that one could buy into. Yeah, it's a it's a strange one. It's like, and that it's like everything else kind of fits to it. like yeah, does want to confront the death? Okay, she spends the funeral money on a holiday instead. She's kind of just wants to go a bit crazy. All of that I understand. It makes sense. Um, <laughs> And even if she'd just she'd gone to, to she'd gone to Spain, and had left the body in the flat or something. Yeah, all of that kind of experience. But there's there's one bit, and again, you feel like you should really dislike this character because she's playing music while she's doing. It. She's got mm-hmm. sunglasses on, and it's just. But it's because it's so strange and it's so. Yeah, ambiguous is a good word. I silly. I've no idea what's going inside her head it, it there. It feels like there might be an entire first act missing from this film where we <laughs> establish the nature of the relationship and everything else thereafter hinges on that and might give us some sort of clue as to as to what she's thinking. But there's just none of that. Yeah, because the there's most you get that. is when she's talking to Lana, Kathleen McDermott's character, mm. and um, when she tells her they're sitting in the bath together and she tells, she says, he's left me. Mm. And, she say, and uh, Lana says, oh, it's probably just another one of his moods. So yeah. clearly she was aware that he was depressive and perhaps that their relationship had been a sort of on-off kind of thing, something like that maybe. Mm. That's the only hint you get about what was really going on there. But yeah, and like, her colleagues at the supermarket saying, oh, don't worry, he'll be back with his tail between his legs. Yeah. You might assume and, that this is not the first time, this is the first time that she's been bereft of him, just not necessarily in the circumstance that presents itself now. Yes, whereas, you know, the... All of the other potential grief things make sense apart from the dismemberment and it's so strange. Like yeah, it does like you're saying, Craig, is it like a revenge thing? Had she felt in some way either physically or mentally abused by him mm. or, or something? It's it, it's missing something. But at the same time, yes, you don't immediately hate this character. Mm. Uh that may be more to do with Samantha Morton's innate likability. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, but yes, the same thing. Uh, I don't hold her in quite as high regard as you seem to do, Craig, but although I have liked her a great deal in many things. Uh, so I, I do see where you're coming from too, that she, it's hard to really get a handle on her or her character in this yeah. film. It feels like she and Lim Ramsey have had some fantastic discussions and have a very, diff- very definite 
trajectory for this character. They're mm-hmm. just not letting us know what it is. <laughs> yes. But I've got a sneaking suspicion from his silence that Scott is sitting on an opinion bomb on this one. <laughs> oh, um, I've been keeping silent because you're basically saying what I'd be saying. It's, oh, uh, <laughs> it, it, is, it is strange that it has got to be the least prejudicial uh, showing of a dismemberment than I've ever seen in film, which normally <laughs> was, has at least some implied criticism that you just don't get here, which is it was a, it was refreshing good, in a way. It was a good 30 seconds before I even cottoned on to that's what she was doing. Yes. Yeah, at first, when you see she's like, she's, but she's got her foot on the edge of the bath, yeah, and she like leans down, toenails or something. and you see this blood spurt, and I actually thought at first she was harming herself. Mm. Like she was digging a razor into her legs or something like mm. that, mm. and it was her blood, and it's like, oh, no, right, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so strange. It's so yeah, non-prejudicial. It's so strange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on the same page with you for most of the rest of it as well. It's you know, it's one thing presenting presenting a character as an enigma, but that does imply there's some sort of solution to it, and I don't think there is in this case. Um, it's I, you know, for all that, I didn't hate it, and I echo what you're saying mm. with the rest of it. Every other aspect of it is really well done. Um, yeah. And much better than you'd expect, as you, you say, for a, a, just a second I, time. I almost kind of, I almost kind of admire its willful obtuseness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, overall, I still would actually say I hated the film. I, I, I watched it and enjoyed it well enough, but just at the end of it, I'm just left with a big question mark over what the what what <laughs> yeah. was that about? Everything. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it doesn't um, it doesn't really even end satisfyingly. Too she she's in Spain. She finally meets um the publishers okay and she's she gets the money and okay right um so maybe she's thinking i'm gonna change my life or do something i was still thinking you know is this is this dismembered body going to come back to haunt her so to speak you know is this still (laughs) going to be a thing um she comes back and basically she gets a check and kind of just looks at her life and shrugs and they film ends because she's left it's like it's It's like i don't at the end of the day, a film a film that leaves unanswered questions often a very satisfying thing. I don't necessarily need something to even to empathise with. Just give me something to understand. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't mind the unanswered questions if I had any idea what the questions ought to be in the first place. I'm not entirely convinced that I do. Yeah. Don't yes. just write a question mark on a frame of 35mm film and go, £8, please. <laughs> Ah oh dear. Yeah, it's one thing being a mood piece, but when the mood is just confusion, it doesn't really <laughs> satisfy quite so much. Yeah. Yes. Um, we're going to go in more into this later, but uh, I hadn't actually seen any Lynn Ramsey stuff before preparing for this podcast. And I think I don't actually like a single Lynn Ramsey film, but at the same point, there's not one that I actually dislike either. And mm. I, I certainly find something interesting in all of them. Yes. But I'm. I, particularly baffled by this one like i don't know is she a bad person or is she just a troubled person or i, yeah. I really don't know well look, full disclosure at this point i won't be offering our listeners opinions on the next two films we talk about because i haven't i haven't had chance to watch them yet but um i i will at least be watching um you were never really here because um i am compelled to find out whether i'm as I am as baffled by it as, as I am by this, and whether it shares the same traits of craftsmanship and um, and uh, a competence that the rest of her work does, uh, but just without this baffling, baffling non-message. Sure, I mean, I think I think it's fair to say they require taste. I don't think I dislike any of them, and there's yeah. 
I think I actually would say I like three out of four of them that we cover here, and the, the features at least. So it's, I need to actually correct myself there. there. There's one actually I really do like, which is the one you're going to speak about next, Scott. But yes, um, yeah. So yeah, I, I just against it because there's definitely there aren't any that I dislike. There, there's none that I regret watching. I just I kind of wish I liked some of them more than I did. Mm-hmm. But there's none that I would say were bad films. I'm just. Mm. With this one it's, it's a weird thing to say baffled. that you've, you've appreciated the artistry of something that much, but that you can't actually say that you've enjoyed it as as a film. Mm. Um, but I don't know. But I don't know. So what what are you going to talk about next, Scott? Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. That oh. is the name of the film, and also an instruction. Crossbow Kevin. Yes, there. There's a really quick capsule summary of we need to talk about Kevin's plot that really underplays everything in it, and also the way that the film's structured. And in the spirit of its aggressive non-linearity, I'd intended to similarly structure this recap. However, it's been an exhausting week in an apparently endless series of exhausting weeks. So <laughs> <laughs> let's go with clarity over cleverness here. Uh, so to Tilda Swinton's Eva Cachadorian and John C. Riley's Franklin, a child, Damien. Wait, no, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> Although, certainly the child that plays the second youngest version of Kevin seen on screen yeah. could easily be the child from The Omen, because yeah. he is evil. Yeah, so Kevin appears to learn the joys of gaslighting at an early age, being an insufferable <laughs> jackass to Eva whenever Franklin's not around, and sweetness and light when he is. Kevin, played by Ezra Miller once he reaches the quote-unquote difficult teenage years, which is a bit of an understatement in this film, uh, shows signs of having something very wrong with him from his youth. And that's something that Eva continually revisits in the movie's present, where she finds her situation markedly worse than in the flashbacks. And I'm dancing around what might be considered a spoiler here, but, well, it's a seven-year-old film at this point, so consider yourself well-warned. Uh, so yes. she's she's now the town pariah, and also suffering from post-traumatic stress after, final warning, uh, Kevin's interest in archery graduates into a school mass murder. Now, much of the film is a character study in survivor's guilt, but... As much as it's treating it seriously, there's also an element of the unreliable narrator in here. And I, I say this because Eva's remembrance of Kevin's behaviour is much closer to coming out of the omen than seems entirely reasonable. Um, I'll perhaps I'll open that up to the floor a bit later on, but in the interest of clearing my opinions out of the way, I like this film a lot. It's the best performance, I think, that I've ever seen Tilda Swinton give. And Ezra Miller's worryingly convincing as a sociopath. This level of non-linearity often annoys me in film because it's frequently a transparent distraction from a weak narrative. But this is really effectively deployed here and it makes Swinton's character all the more sympathetic. Ramsey's visuals haven't exactly been weak in the previous films, but the higher budget of this Hollywood outing allows for a glossiness that wasn't there before, uh, certainly in the probably also embellished memories of happier moments with John C. Riley, whose underuse would perhaps be my only issue with the film, but then again, it's not about his character, so it's not really. I just always want to see more John C. Riley. Hollywood, sort it out. So, I mean, if you want a recommendation now, I approve it, and I think you should all watch it. I really, really enjoyed this. By far the most satisfying Lynn Ramsey thing, and mm. something I mentioned later, but I think because while I, I appreciate emotion, mood, character, those things narrative matters more to me in most films than anything else and this Mm. has a stronger narrative than any of her other films Yeah, and I've not read the book, I I know the book's pretty well regarded to so I can't speak to how well it follows the structure of the book, but this the, I hadn't actually given any consideration to the unreliable narrator point that you brought, but you do make a good point in that they do, it does seem like the omen it's just so over the top the the evil things this child does yeah a lot of it the way it's framed and shot 
reminds me more of horror films than it does of anything. It's more like a, a psychological study than it does. It's it's, yeah. it, it's yeah. certainly leading into genre than uh, more than you'd expect for something like this. I would say. Yeah, but at the same point, those because if you don't, I mean, I knew what the book was about, so therefore I knew what the film was about. But the film does do a good point, good job of just of hinting what's going to come, and you can work out yeah. fairly early if you're not familiar with the story. But sort of, you see where it's going. Um, yeah, and you sort of you see the flashes and stuff, and so it's just because I mean, it, it works too. That sort of fractured narrative works because the woman's mind is clearly fractured. Yeah, and yeah, I I don't really like Tilda Swinton a great deal. But I have I've said I've never seen her better than in We Need to Talk About Kevin. I think she's fantastic mm-hmm. in this. Yeah, uh, I don't have an awful lot more to add to what you say apart from this film probably represents the, the nadir of the one thing I've found that I really dislike about Lynn Ramsey is that she's hella heavy on the symbolism and imagery it's just, it's over the top in this film and it was kind of driving me crazy by the end it was a good it's, okay, I get the idea that Tilda Swindon's character Eva is oh you say survivor Scott Wilson, like, yeah she thinks she has blood on her hands because it's her child that's perpetrated this crime See, by the 812th time I've seen her with um, metaphorical blood on her hands, yeah. <laughs> I kind of get it. Yeah. And it was it's just so heavily overplayed and it was doing my head in. Mm-hmm. And it's the only real criticism I have of this film. I thought it was just a thoroughly compelling film, excellent performances. Ezra Miller, who I think I've only seen oh, briefly in the Amy Schumer film Trainwreck, um, Apart from that, the Justice League, and I thought he was appalling in the Justice League. Yeah, I didn't League. realize he's the guy that plays the Flash. Yeah, not in the TV Flash, but in Justice League. Yeah, mm. he's only that's the only thing I can remember seeing him in. Apart from that small part in the Amy Schumer film, uh, he's great in this. He's he's just evil, but mm-hmm. kind of like knowing and intelligent evil rather than just creepy evil. Yeah, he's a he's a fantastic, um, it's a fantastic job in this. What makes it actually is the one of the very last scenes where he's you know talking with his mother in prison. Finally, after seemingly not really describing what was going on properly after for the years since it happened, and where it kind of breaks through that you know maybe he's past whatever mental imbalance was causing him to do this stuff, and he just sort of doesn't really know what's happened to him anymore. That's a nice yeah. little scene at the end to kind of tie that back a bit and uh, makes him a little bit more human. Yeah. Whereas before he had been coming across very much as a uh, let's say a horror movie protagonist, and yeah. yeah, so it's nice to see what happens to Jason after he's been through a couple of <laughs> rounds of psychotherapy. Yeah. Yes, um, so I really don't have much more to say on them. Like this, this is the the only one I would recommend without reservation of her films that I've seen. Uh, I just thought it was yeah extremely well acted. It's really well shot. It is uh, yeah the the extra budget shows and it helps. There's a sort mm. of a crispness to this film that the previous two films um, didn't have yeah. that appealed to me. But yeah, my, my only real issue with this is just that the the symbolism and imagery, and I'm not the only person who's made this criticism from what I can gather from reading about her films in the last few days, the symbolism and imagery is so heavy-handed in this. Like I said, you, there's, there are so many scenes where she's washing blood or metaphorical blood off her hands and then... Yeah. Probably it feels like fifty percent of the film is swathed in red paint or red dye or red light or red yeah. lights <laughs> or um, tomatoes. 
guess it's some sort of <laughs> festival in Spain or something originally yeah. at the start, I think, with um, a lot of tomatoes. That from the very beginning, the film steeped in blood. And it's like, okay, I get it, but steady on, eh? A bit of restraint would have been nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other than that, that's my only, only complaint with the film is because everything else is just so well done. Fractured narrative, non-linear narrative. Like you say, Scott, sometimes it can be a a distraction Yeah, it's a, um, from a less than stellar plot or it could just be that somebody likes that idea and doesn't really know how to deliver it. Mm. Definitely not the case here. Uh, it really matches up with the, kind of the fractured mind and actually now thinking more about the unreliable narrator thing, I think you're, you may be onto something there because I was taking a lot of the stuff quite literally. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I probably should have thought a bit le- a bit more about that because some of it is just so it feels so unbelievable that a like a young child could do these things, you know, outside of the omen. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, I, I've no real basis for that other than that's what I thought when I was watching it this time through. I'm pretty sure I didn't take anything like that from it the first time I watched it, what seven years ago. But yeah, and I've, I've not really read anything about it since. But when I was watching it this time, it, it seemed like that was the most obvious solution to squaring that because otherwise yeah. it could just be a little bit silly um, and I don't think it is a silly film I think it's got uh, no, something a bit more uh, artistry behind it to just dismiss it in, in that regard yeah it's I mean it's it's the first time I've seen it so uh, maybe mm. on a second viewing uh, without having had this conversation I would have thought that anyway I was just quite engaged by the whole film and, yeah. and I was apart from <laughs> and really it's the imagery, the heavy-handed imagery was really bothering me, so I'm sorry to keep going on about it, but the other thing was more, I was spending a lot of my mental energy on thinking about the way people were treating her, and I'm thinking, okay, I can understand to some extent why you're blaming the parent of a child who did this, but at the same time, she didn't do anything wrong, she didn't kill anybody. Yeah. Uh, Even to think about that more, it's like, well, maybe, yeah, the unreliable narrator thing too, these flashbacks of a sort that she's having of her time with Kevin perhaps that's her kind of rewriting her own history to justify it to herself that it, that it wasn't her failing mm-hmm. that it was in fact the child was evil yeah, she was born that way uh, yeah I mean when I was watching this time too I think the only thing that stuck out as me is, is being strange is why hadn't she moved I mean it was one thing to say you'd be leaving your life behind but not much of a life to leave behind as it's shown here so I'd have, I'd just got out of town I think um, yeah but. that's just I, I know she's clearly you do there's you do hear one point where I guess her lawyer says to her at some point um, you're going to lose the house and things because people are going to sue her for compensation or something so she doesn't have much money yeah. it would seem but she's I'm okay with that I hated the house I always hated the house and it's clearly whatever her and her husband do they make a lot of money because it's it is literally a mansion. Yeah. And then she's moved to this very small house afterwards. But yeah, could you not have moved to at least the next town over or something? Yeah. I realise she's gonna have reduced means after that, but she had enough money to get a house somewhere. Could it not have been in a different town? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's strange. Uh, so that feels a wee bit artificial. All I could all you need to do is like write one small thing about it that that she's simply for some reason, financial probably, that she wasn't able to move out of the town or she had to stay in that house because she couldn't afford to do anything mm. else or something like that. That's yeah. the, only, the only other minor niggle I have with it. I yeah, guess. I mean, I'm I'm picking nits here. It's, oh, uh, absolutely. So am I. It's a really great film, but I want it, you know, definitely should be on anyone's watch list. 
Very compelling indeed. I might check out the book um, as well now. Check it out. So there's the, after uh, we need to talk about Kevin, there was a bit of a gap in, in Ramsey's biography because part of that, of yeah. course, was because she was embroiled in the saga of uh, Jane Got a Gun, which mm, yes. I... I, oh, I'd forgotten about that. I'd forgotten about that until this afternoon. I remember when we talked about it a couple mm-hmm. of years ago that it'd come up, but I'd entirely forgotten about it until mm. today. Yeah, so a very troubled production, which she eventually shed herself from, uh, probably with good cause when you see the final products. Um, yeah. Was but, it Natalie Portman who was originally involved yes. in that one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, I mean, she left because of creative differences, left on day one, but there was also apparently at least accusations of dodgy financial dealings, I guess, by the producers. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, it was a whole, it was a whole <laughs> cluster mess. As I understand <laughs> was, it, was Uwe, Uwe Ball involved at some point? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the next uh, feature that came out uh, just mere weeks ago, I think actually, uh, in the UK yes. at least, is you were never really here. So Drew, take that away. Yes, Scott. It was at Cannes last year, but certainly here, and I think in the United States as well. It just came out in March. Mm-hmm. Um, been on the shelf largely for a year. Well, now, while I have admittedly done it before and on more than one occasion, I try to avoid, if I can, describing a film in terms of it's X meets Y or <laughs> it's a cross between A and B. Thank God, I thought you were going somewhere else with that statement, Drew. <laughs> Genuinely, I'd lost to what you mean there, so that's probably a good thing because otherwise I suspect <laughs> I'd be insulted. But <laughs> yeah, it. I do try to avoid that, as it can be reductive and potentially dismissive. There are times, though, when describing a film thusly is a useful shorthand, and so it is with You Were Never Really Here, which is a cross between Taken and Equaliser, but with a more arthouse bent. Ex-Marine Joe, mumbled by Joaquin Phoenix, (laughs) is a loner. His only meaningful relationship with another human being is with his elderly mother. He is plagued by images of a violent past, both in his childhood and in his military career, and he seems to find catharsis, of a sort, as well as earning his living, in taking contracts to rescue young girls who have been taken into the sex trade. Contracts he carries out with efficiency, brutality, and a hammer. Cool. When asked to rescue his daughter by a New York state senator, who says he can't go to the police because of mumble 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 look quick look over there things go very badly wrong in a plot straight out of a thousand airport novels and six seasons of police procedural tv series can you say cliche bizarrely this film was in contention for the pam dork can last year and has been compared repeatedly and favorably to martin scorsese's taxi driver presumably by people who have never actually seen martin scorsese's taxi driver <laughs> Okay, maybe that's not entirely fair. There are some parallels, but little comparison. I described this earlier as a cross between Taken and Equaliser, but with a more arthouse bent, which in this case I'm sad to say means with all of the action removed and anything that would make this in any way fun. Though one thing all of these films have in common, of course, is male heroism predicated on saving women in distress. As a result of that, I had high hopes for the notably not-a-man Lynn Ramsey bringing a new, <laughs> different perspective to the genre. But those hopes were sadly dashed. Oh, I was going to say, I was assuming that was where you were going with this, but... 
Well, I mean, to a degree it has. I mean, it's a standard issue revenge fantasy with most of the revenge cut out of it. So. <laughs> yes. So, yes, sadly Dash Tops. Now, while the sequels can and probably should be forgotten, and I know you disagree with me, Craig, but I got, felt the same way as I did when we discussed it years ago. Taken, to, oh, no, I knew it. Oh, I have to take action now. Okay, Taken, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Taken was a successful high-concept action film with pleasingly crunchy fight scenes and the satisfaction of seeing the bad guys who force young women into sex slavery and their customers getting their comeuppance. Craig, I mean, if you're getting upset about this, just think of literally any one of a million like 70s exploitation films. I mean, Taken didn't invent the revenge fantasy, and this is just another sort of take on it. Uh, I know, but so don't take- say it's got anything good going for it. <laughs> ah! I love you both. I would take a bullet for you both, but why must we have... <laughs> okay, let's not have this conversation. Okay, I'm on board. While it may pretend otherwise, you are never really here is largely the same film as Taken, but eschewing most of the action for an exploration of the psyche of the man delivering said comeuppance. Now, to be fair again, <laughs> even with... <laughs> I, love that you... <laughs> I love that you have to preposition this with a now. <laughs> Hear me out. <laughs> even with her limited feature work, I think we've established fairly well by this point in the podcast that Lynn Ramsey cares little, if anything, for narrative preferring to focus more on mood, emotion and psychology. And that's fine, even if personally, as I mentioned earlier, I crave narrative satisfaction. But for a film to focus on those things, the mood, emotion and psychology, they have to be there. And here, they're just not. And they were never really there. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing to this film. I mean, it's undeniably well made, and while Joaquin Phoenix receiving acting awards for this seems perhaps undeserved, his performance is certainly leagues beyond, for instance, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant. Phoenix conveys Joe's anguish and the torment of his abusive upbringing and traumatic military service, and, well, that's about it. Hmm. Johnny Greenwood's score, so often a highlight, doesn't feel so much out of place here as squandered, deserving of something of much more substance. As, frankly, is Phoenix's performance. Though his is his mother, Judith Roberts aside, more or less the only performance in the film. The title You Were Never Really Here is clearly meant to be a comment on Joe, but actually, Joe is the only thing that is there, and it's everything else that really isn't. I agree entirely, although I still kind of like the film at the end of the day. Everyone's comparing it to Taken purely because it was the most high-profile recent revenge thing, but it could be any of a million films, as I've said. Um, you know, I liked this film better when it was Commando or Old Boy or something <laughs> like that, you know what I mean? Uh, and for a while, when he picked up that hammer, I was hoping it was going to get some proper Korean hammer violence yeah, so getting right into it, but no, I saw that hammer, none of that. Thinking, please, please be public enemy, please be public <laughs> enemy. <laughs> yes, God, that, there's a film we need to go back to. It's just frustrating watching it because there's lots of things in there I really like. And as with all other films, it's really well put together. And I think Joaquin yep. Phoenix does does pretty well in it. Visually, it's, um, I was going to say nice. It's not nice given the way it's, it's shot, given what it's depicting, but it's, it's really well shot. Uh, it, it, I think it looks good on screen. And uh, I found the, the character compelling. What I couldn't get behind was the story because I almost no idea why anyone was doing what they were doing at any given moment. Aside from the, the, the overarching theme of get girl back, I didn't know why yes. or 
why he was going to do the things he was doing or who he was meeting and all these kind of things. So just all that just was not particularly well explained to me. <laughs> I needed a bit more explanation. I think I suppose Ramsey's point might be that it's not all that important and we're just trying to move move the visual along with it, but I need some story, I need some as you say, narrative meat to get my teeth into and this doesn't really have it. It kind of ignores most of most of the motivations and everything else that you'd only expect to find in these kind of things. It just doesn't have it. Perhaps a lot of people just don't care about that and they're just happy to see, you know, they've seen enough of this sort of film that they can just take the art house view of it and uh, appreciate what that kind of take would be as a uh, intellectual curiosity more than anything else. But yeah, as a film, it's unsatisfying, which I think is a shame uh, because otherwise I kind of liked it. I like an awful lot about it. Um, and even with that, you know, one pretty, to my mind, critical omission, it still kind of came across as entertaining to me. Uh, I wouldn't certainly necessarily recommend anyone avoid it for any particular reason, but it's also hard to recommend a lot of people who would like it, other than just, as I've said, it's an interesting art house take on a, a commonly held as a lowbrow classic. But overall, I'd still rather watch Commando. And that's where, <laughs> that's where it comes back to. So for someone like myself, so because I haven't watched um, Kevin or You Were Never Really Here yet, and I had professed my intention to watch You Were Never Really Here because it interested me to think of someone like Lynn Ramsey operating in that space, I guess you've you've I knocked that on the head because I, it doesn't sound like she's actually doing anything all that interesting with it. I, I don't think there she would be brings some, anything particularly worthwhile to no, it. No, I'd assumed there would be some sort of you know innately... Um, I don't want to say female, but a, a perspective that um, Lynn Ramsey would be able to innately bring to that genre that would make it worthwhile seeing. But it sounds like, actually, I should probably put my eggs in. We need to talk no. about Kevin's basket Absolutely. instead. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's nothing... Yeah, there's nothing remarkable about it. She, what she's done is she's tried to focus less on the act and more of the person doing yeah. the act. But I don't think that it's done in any way successfully. Okay. Um, that... The character, yeah, there, there are hints of interest about the character. And yeah, while Scott clearly liked it more than I did, I think we're, we're largely on the same page about it. And it's well made and I want to like it more. Like mm. I said, there's none of her films that I actively dislike. Yeah. I can find something of merit in all of them. It's just, it's kind of frustrating. I, I want, I need more from this film. And it's just, yeah. it's just. Um, it's like so many, as I say, so many exploitation films from the last fifty years, really. That um, it's just it's trying to focus a wee bit more on mood, and I just don't maybe, think it does it particularly successfully. Maybe a disappointment then, but not necessarily a surprise. And I guess if you don't, without considering what we know now, having um, uh, partaken of Lynn Ramsey's body of work, I suppose I feel like this genre, that sort of revenge, you know that. That very, like you say, drew the the airport paperback um, revenge movie. Um, I think very much stuck in a rut. I don't know what it is differently that we can do on that now. And I suspect that if anything is going to give that genre a jolt, a jolt, the likelihood is that it will come from a female director offering a perspective on that stuff that we haven't really considered before. Um, and I suppose disappointed in that respect then that that Ramsey's not delivered that but actually if we take a step back and consider it in the context of the rest of her body of work maybe maybe actually not surprising you know um I suspect the source material is a problem too she uh, adapted the screenplay but it's from a novella right and the film's only 89 minutes 
Uh, I mean, most of our films are actually about that length. Mm, yeah. The only one that's slightly longer is by about 20 minutes is we need to talk about Kevin. Mm. So she's very efficient. And I guess when you're focusing more on mood than mm. narrative, you, it's easier to do that. Um, it's smart to know not to outstay your welcome. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe necessary then too, yes. But the... I'm not as sure that the work it's based on is particularly well regarded, but also I remember thinking, this is 89 minutes, and I'm watching this thinking, 89 minutes is a bit of a stretch. Really? Is this it? And then, not that I was bored, but more that it didn't feel like there was enough substance in there to even cover that time. Mm. Um, and then I found out that it's from a, a novella that is itself only 90 pages long. I was like, ah, well that probably explains that. But <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and I'm, it's just kind of so... The story's so generic because it it's been in so many films, and then the the twist that that people in positions of power are doing naughty things is like really. Yeah. And I, I have definitely seen that in like every police procedural I've ever watched. So, what 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 do you think it was then that would have attracted? Because, like you say, that Lynn Ramsey is someone who she doesn't poke her head above water often. I mean, there was nine years between Marvin Caller and. We need to talk about Kevin and six years between that and this, was it? Did we say? Yeah. So what was it about this then? What was it about this material that might have compelled her to to take it on board? Good question. I don't know. Mm. Having not read the book, but uh, certainly something I read earlier suggested that what she's done is stripped out a lot of the sentimentality from the the novella. So um, I guess there's not really an awful lot more in it than that. Uh, Right. Bizarre. I'm not sure without having read that what might have been the hook there but it's not because for instance uh Marvin Callar and we need to talk about Kevin were both based on books as well so she's yeah she does apparently like literary adaptation and she's generally the screenwriter herself yeah like all the time in fact but whereas yeah we need to talk about Kevin very well regarded book and with a um, deep narrative strong characterization and stuff but a 90 page novella that feels like it could have been written by any of a hundred people and in fact yeah. has been yeah <laughs> i wonder if it's been that she felt like stripping away the sentimentality and the bravado and whatnot that often weighs that sort of stuff down might be saying enough in and of itself but uh yeah well, that's interesting i still kind of feel like i should well when an act, when a when a director's body of work encompasses four movies i feel like it's remiss of me to say i have to choose between we need to talk about kevin and this i should probably watch them both actually but, yeah, but definitely um, prioritize the former yeah yeah, and I think you will still find something to appreciate in uh, in this film. It's certainly it's just not a patch on read to talk about Kevin. So if you yeah, if you're yeah. going to prioritise it, definitely that's the one to go for. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so uh, we're going to briefly talk about her short films, Scott. Given her output is so scant, really. Uh, sure. I mean, we've not discussed short films before in this podcast, or at any point I recall in our previous incarnation, so this is a 15-year streak we're breaking, I guess. Yeah, but uh, I mean, the reason, I think at least personally, we've not done so, is that I tend yeah. not to get an awful lot of joy out of short films, regardless yes. of the quality. I don't yet. I think, by their nature, certainly by trend, they're often much more experimental. And, I mean, it maybe fits with Lynn Ramsey, that they're very often more about mood than narrative, necessarily. Yes, I, in general, don't get an awful lot of short mm. films. Animated shorts are separate. Animated shorts tend to work pretty well. But live-action shorts in particular. So I remember one we watched, Scott. I'm guessing it was something like 10 or 15 minutes long, but it felt like about eight hours. And I think it was a Serbian film, black and white. And it was basically a man went to work. 
And that was it. Uh, and I've seen too many shorts that are like that, or just baffling things. Yes, I, I don't get a lot out of short films, so I, I'm not particularly eager to speak about them on a podcast, generally. Yes, I, I like speed narratives, me. Uh, and yes. The, and the very shortness of short films tends to limit that aspect, so... As you say, they, get, they kind of feel like showreels to me for various aspects of production, which you know, is fine, but it's not my cup of tea. Uh, Ramsey's released four short features over a career, and while they're all pretty good in one regard or another, I'm not sure it's had much of an effect on my overall opinion of shorts. It does, however, track quite well with her progression as a filmmaker, so there's some interest in that aspect, if you like her films, or just film in general. Uh, all of these are available, perhaps not entirely legally, on YouTube, but... As I think it's only ever been possible to buy one of these on a now out-of-print DVD, I don't think we should get too hung up about the legality of directing y'all in that direction. The earliest, Small Deaths, is a selection of flashbacks to various moments in a young girl's life. The moments of embarrassment or humiliation that burn into your mind, even as the rational part of you knows that most likely no one else on the planet either remembers or cares about them. Uh, It's quite well observed and executed. Well worth a look, uh, particularly if you want to train yourself on the deployment of Glasgow dialect to obscure communication. It's a little-known fact that during World War II, the Allied forces secured their voice comms from snooping by having only Bee as radio operators. Gasman continues looking at Glasgow youth, uh, also feeling like it could be autobiographical. Uh, two kids are sent with their dad to a Christmas party, on the way meeting a woman and her kids that also seem strangely familiar with her dad. Again, well observed, but other than moments of sympathy, I didn't get all that much from it. Uh, I think my problem with most of these, and good shorts in general, is that I'm left wanting more from it, and to know the characters better. And, well, it's, then it's a feature, so that's me out of luck. Uh, so these two came before her first feature, Ratcatcher, so if they were the demo reels to secure her that job, then job done, I suppose. That continues into Kill the Day, released between Ratcatcher and Morven Collar. It's a whistle-stop tour of a drug addict's life, bouncing around with uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin's Nonlinearity through James Gallagher, played by James Ramsey's Early Life, Drug Addiction, Incarceration for Theft, and Attempt to Go Straight. Again, I don't think there's anything I particularly dislike about it, apart from wishing that it could be fleshed out with a longer running time. Uh, but again, then it's not a short. Uh, I don't think this story could be told much better by anyone else given the time limitations, but in that regard, I do respect it. But again, there's not enough here to truly satisfy me. Her latest short, Swimmer, shares a few things with her latest film, primarily that it has moved the slider all the way up to style at the expense of <laughs> substance. A beautifully shot in ultra-contrasty black and white, but there's no cohesive narrative to speak of at all in it. A bloke swims down a river, and increasingly odd things happen with little rhyme or reason. Uh, yes, this There's no not no cohesive narrative, Scott. There is no narrative. Not one at all, no. It's my least favourite of her works. But even with that said, it looks good enough and is short enough that it's almost worth watching just to enjoy the visuals. However, there's very little to take from it apart from that. Yeah, let's begin with Swimmer. Uh, because it's one you've mentioned most recently. That is the one that I wanted to like most because it did look so nice. Yeah. That very crisp black and white footage. But I have no idea what was going on. I didn't care. Mm-hmm. I'd read it described as some sort of trip to the British Isles and there was lots of nationalistic music. And I'm thinking, you've watched a different yeah. um, I read that because, and it's wrong. <laughs> yes, none, none of that is correct. And I, I'm not quite sure... What the point was that there's a there's a sound clip from the loneliness of a long distance runner at some point, and then so there's sounds of people playing paper scissors stone. I've no idea what any of that's meant to mean because it had no impact to me at all. It's like there's some sound here, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh it very much is style over substance. Um, 
Whereas to go back to um, Killing the Day, mm. that's the one actually I would have liked it to have been a bit more, uh, not stylistic, but you know, a bit heavier into her imagery and stuff because it felt like it'd be the one thing that would particularly benefit from it. Yeah. That because it's about an addict, if it's kind of focused more on on his feelings rather than the things that were happening to him, I think it would be a bit more successful. And it's reasonably good. Mm. Um, but I think actually that, the perhaps suggesting with his addictions and his withdrawals or whatever, that like, distorted reality or just like the kind of focusing on like what was going on in his head, I think that actually if she'd gone heavier on that, that would have worked better. Yeah. Uh, the first two though, Small Deaths and Gasman. Gasman is the one I liked most, but they are, again, they suffer from, those are the most narrative ones. So they're also the ones like, oh yeah, whoa, 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 what happened next? Yeah. Don't, don't stop, no, no, don't stop now. <laughs> uh, yes, when, if you get interested in her, in her work, it's worth looking um, them up on YouTube. In particular, Small Deaths and uh, Gasman, in terms of style and narrative and setting very much feel like precursors to Ratcatcher, even though one of them came after. But we see that a lot with directors and they start off in short films because they're they're short, they're less expensive, less strenuous to make and then recycle those ideas when they make go to a feature. Even though not all of the things she's made are set in the nineteen seventies, it almost feels we need to talk about Kevin aside that all of her films and short films are or could be set in the nineteen seventies and I think somebody needs to remind Lynn Ramsey other decades are available. <laughs> but yeah, they're they're worth looking at. Um, and again, her body of work is pretty small. So if you like the films, then you're probably going to want to see them just to see more of her stuff because there's not a lot available. Yeah. We had any feedback on the social medias? Yes, there's been a few. The shortest and sweetest comes from the Exploding Helicopter podcast, whose take on You Were Never Really Here is that it's a movie for people who feel like watching and enjoying taking it somehow beneath them. Which is a fair enough comment on that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and also something which, are with with apologies, I will abridge slightly, uh, but our friend Stephen Nelson sent us a, a review of You Were Never Really Here, which short answer is, the, the short version is, he likes it a lot, uh, but <laughs> one, one of the few things that he'd go out of his way to see at the cinema for in the art house uh, realms, but he thinks that both Lynn Ramsey and Joachim Phoenix are kind of underrated and it's a perfect pairing to dig at the dirty and disturbing underbelly of a cliched hitman revenge tale, a refreshing counterpoint to the bombastic Taken and Equalizer franchises. Again, he was very taken with the psychological routine and the protagonist's blunt and clinical approach to his work, and liked the Johnny Grubin's score, hadn't seen a anti-hero's viewpoint, which he emphasised with so keenly since encountering Daniel Plainview and There Will Be Blood, which is a, a powerful comparison to make, but I've got to say I don't quite see it myself. But yes, he thinks that Lynn Ramsey has crafted a visceral and poignant film which deeply affected him and it's less a thriller and more a character study of someone who's emotionally swamped by violence and yet seeks redemption and tender kindness. These stark contrasts are unsettling, engrossing and compelling to witness. So yes, there is a lot of people who are taking an awful lot of joy from You Were Never Really Here, which unfortunately we don't quite share, but even then, it's not not a film that I'm going to say anyone should avoid, so certainly recommended from some people. It's also hoping that we could give Karen Gillan a, a plug for The Party's Just Beginning, uh, the film that she's uh, directing, so something we'd be happy to do, but I don't, don't, don't know if that's actually coming out yet. I've not seen 
don't know where that's coming from. She was directing. I'd seen a few tweets about it, but I don't know where it's going from. In as much as one of the stars of the Guardians of the Galaxy needs a plug from what's on film, but we're we're happy to do it. Yes, come on. We've given a lot of those guys a leg up, Drew. We know Chris Pratt would not be where he is now without us, Craig. No, exactly. (laughs) There's a reason why Robert Downey Jr. has me tattooed on his arse. (laughs) So we'll put that full review up on the website, I think, if he's okay with that. And uh, yes, for your your edification. But uh, we'd also like to just take this moment to thank anyone else who's been retweeting us or doing so in the uh, Twitter sphere. You're you're doing a man's work. (laughs) And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so uh, either through email, podcast at Fuds on Film, you can get us on the Twitters, which is at Fuds on Film, or indeed on Facebook.com slash Fuds on Film, if you that's can, the way you you're right. You can find us in the street and just take us down. We deserve it. Take us down. Only if you have a particular set of skills. Yes, that make that make you a nightmare for people like us. Oh dear. So we'll be back with you uh, on the 10th with another podcast of some description. Um, but until that time, uh, take care of yourself and each other. You can say goodbye if you'd like. Nah. All right. <laughs> I would just <laughs> oh, like to well, say... Oh, well, go on then. Yeah. Bye-bye. I would just like to say that I bit my tongue really badly earlier and it's actually quite badly swollen and I've had a great <laughs> I've had a great deal of difficulty enunciating on this one, so thank you for putting up with me. I'm not joking. <laughs> it feels really freaking weird. <laughs>